and good morning everybody. It's very good to be with you. Uh, welcome to this very oddly named seminar. So over the next 35 minutes or so, uh, I want to lead your thinking about life in a post-Christian culture. What will it be like? Practically, how should we prepare for such a thing? Now, I'm sure there have been times in your life when you have asked yourself the question, how did I end up here? I'd be slightly depressed if you're having that thought at this moment. Um, years ago, you know, I had to go on business. Uh, this is in the days before smartphones. Uh, and I landed uh, jet-lagged, grumpy in Washington, D.C. And my long-suffering PA had uh, booked me into a very nice hotel in a perfectly reasonable part of Washington, but I had written the name down incorrectly. So the taxi driver dumped me outside the worst hotel. In fact, it was actually a motel uh, in one of the dodgiest parts of Washington that I'd ever been in. To give you a sense of the place, the tattooed lady receptionist glared at me through a metal grill that had been tastefully welded to the reception desk. And uh, she said to me, uh, we're overbooked, but you can have the overflow room. And I was so intimidated by this woman that I, I said, OK. And I walked down this dank corridor to, it wasn't even a room. At the very end of this corridor, there was an emergency exit. And the corridor widened slightly. So some enterprising chap had put an internal emergency exit and used that space in between the two doors as an overflow room. So I, six inches above the extremely narrow bed was the largest fire alarm I've ever seen in my life. It was the size of a basin. And, of course, the inevitable occurred. 4.15, uh, this thing went off. It was like a nuclear attack warning. And I performed <laughs> a feat that normally I couldn't, I couldn't perform. By the time I woke up, I was standing upright. In fact, I was running off the end of the bed, and I slammed into the wall opposite. Now, if you recall my description of the two doors, you'll now understand why all the other occupants of the hotel started galloping through my room. And they were all, all the men were basically leather-clad bikers. Most of the women appeared to be called Darlene. Basically, the entire cast of Sons of Anarchy uh, came charging through my room. And uh, I have a really clear memory of lying whimpering on the floor, trying to fit my cufflinks into my pyjama cuffs. And... and uh, I trailed out after these people and stood in this desolate, rain-swept car park. I thought to myself, how did I get here? We do ask that question sometimes, don't we? Sometimes when we're standing, not in the car park, but by a hospital bed or by an open grave. How did I get to this point? It arises in our minds sometimes when we think of the society in which we live. I'm going to show you a video clip well, I hope I'm going to show you a video clip. There is, of course, the old uh, actor's adage, never work with animals, children, or technology. But we will try this. If it doesn't work, I will look pleadingly at Phil. You may have seen it. It was floating around Facebook for a little while. Uh, and the thing to make, the point I want to make here is this is not a joke. This is not a stage joke. These are real students, <laughs> if there's a difference. Uh, these are real students um, uh, who uh, have been interviewed on the subject of identity. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think. Uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. 
I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five... Uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? I know that almost I could hear the laughter of, of incredulity there, but it is deadly serious. Um, anyone raised within a Christian worldview, particularly someone of my vintage, will look at that video and ask themselves, how did we end up here? How did our culture get to this point? How did the most basic assumptions about truth and morality and reality collapse so quickly? 
A revolution has occurred in Western culture over the last hundred years or so and has left many Christians feeling bewildered. We used to feel comfortable in our cultural skin, but now when we walk out the front door, we can feel as if we're stepping into an alien landscape. And that brings me to the somewhat eccentric title for this seminar, Raised in Jerusalem, Heading for Babylon. The title refers to a hugely significant moment in the Old Testament, um, an event called the Exile. The books of the Bible which deal mostly with the exile uh, would be Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, but some of the smaller books do as well. Uh, one of Jeremiah's contemporaries was a man called Habakkuk. Apparently the right way to pronounce that is Habakkuk, but that sounds so wildly pretentious I refuse to use it. And you can read his little book over a cup of coffee. Its structure is really simple. First, Habakkuk complains to God about the appalling moral and spiritual state of Judah. Why aren't you doing something, Lord? He complains. And the Lord says, in effect, don't worry, I am doing something. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the Babylonians to drag the people of Judah into exile. Habakkuk is appalled. So he makes a second complaint to God. This is even worse, he says. Your solution is even worse than the original problem. Why would you do such a thing, Lord? As an aside, has that ever happened in your life? Something has happened in your life and you have prayed to God and things get even worse? Think about what the exile meant for a moment. Imagine you were one of those 10,000 people taken in uh, 597 BC from your home in Israel, made to undertake nearly a thousand mile journey to Babylon. Everything would be different. The food, the language, the layout of the streets. Instead of the comforting uh, contours of the temple and the royal palace in Jerusalem, there would be idols in every street corner. There would be over a thousand pagan temples guarded by big winged sphinxes. God's people no longer felt at home. They were strangers living in a strange land. And their home back in Judah had been destroyed. Jerusalem, the city of God, had been razed to the ground. Even the temple, the place where God had placed his name, had been torn down. And we don't need to speculate, speculate how the exiles felt. I've just put up Psalm, the beginning of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept as we remembered Zion. No wonder Habakkuk was appalled. What possible good could come from the exile? Why would he allow such a thing? Why would he allow their precious culture to be torn down? Why would he ask God's people to raise their children in a pagan world? Maybe you can already discern why these ancient books have such relevance to our culture, particularly those of you who are parents here. We were raised in Jerusalem, but we're heading for life in Babylon. By that I mean we were raised in a culture founded on Christian values, there were thriving churches on every street corner. But that culture is being torn down with bewildering speed. The young people in this room are going to live life in a pagan culture. They haven't moved geographically. The physical landscape of Northern Ireland remains unchanged. But the moral landscape is unrecognisable. And as a result, Christians find themselves feeling increasingly alienated, living in an unfamiliar place. And just as those ancient Israelites lay slumped by the poplar trees on the banks of the river Euphrates... Remembering the good old days, we can do the same. You remember the days when even atheists were Christian atheists? Now, please don't be alarmed. Uh, Phil did once have to sit through a, a series of talks I gave on Jeremiah. Uh, you are on holiday after all, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but I want to use uh, Jeremiah's book to help us gain one particular insight. And it's this. How do cultures collapse? The book of Jeremiah, I would argue, is a forensic examination of that question. How do cultures change and collapse? See, if we can answer that question, it'll help us stand back and see strategically what is going on. 
rather than simply being caught up in events as they unfold. So Jeremiah outlines a three-stage process. But at one point in the book, um, at one point in the book, he outlines a godly a picture of what a godly society should look like. Now, I know that slide looks like the product of a deranged imagination, but give, give, let me quickly explain it. You see, what is a society? A society is more than a collection of people who happen to share a piece of land. A society has institutions that promote human flourishing and which maintain order. So in Jeremiah's day, there was a king, there were officials, there was an army. We, they were the political structures, if you like. But there were equally important and powerful groups in that society. The priests and the prophets. Now, they didn't exert political power directly, but they wielded enormous cultural power. You see, they told people what to worship. They told people what was real. And those are very powerful tools, aren't they? So suddenly this ancient society doesn't look so strange. We have a political elite. Politicians, the civil service, the judiciary, the police, the army. But we also have a cultural elite. The people who tell us what is real and what we should worship. I'm thinking here of philosophers, popularizing scientists, and of course, the big gorilla, the media. These are the groups today who tell us what is real and what is of ultimate value in life. Now, of course, a society is more than people plus institutions. In a well-cultivated society, there's an invisible fabric that makes people good neighbors and work colleagues and citizens. For example, we share uh, a common respect for the law. And Jeremiah saw the covenant as the key element in his society. Now, he was thinking about the covenant which God established in, uh, in Mount Sinai. You can read about it in Exodus 19. And think about Moses coming down the mountain with those ten commandments uh, on those two tablets of stone. On one tablet were the commandments uh, about how I should relate to God. I shouldn't have idols. I should worship the true and living God only. And then on the other tablet were the commandments about how I should relate to other people. So the first tablet told me not to make idols. The second tablet told me not to steal from or murder my neighbor. And our Lord summarized all the law in exactly that way, didn't he? The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So the covenant can be viewed as a bridge between our private world and our public lives. It revealed, the covenant does, that there's an inextricable link between our private beliefs about God and our public lives as citizens and neighbors. And here was Jeremiah's point. When that thing is working properly... When individual people, the priests, the prophets, the king, everybody, all obey the, uh, <coughs> the culture, well, it's a bit like a garden. I mean, I do, of course, speak as one of Ireland's foremost gardeners. Um, the thing is bursting with life and innovation and human flourishing, but it's also well-ordered and well-maintained. God regards a well-run, flourishing society as a beautiful thing. So at breakneck speed, let's now consider the three-stage collapse. <coughs> In stage one, the cultural elite, in Jeremiah's day, the false prophets and the ruling priestly class built an idol. Now, they didn't build a physical idol. They erected a set of ideas about what was real and what was worthy of worship. They, what they did was they fused together religion and politics to create a sort of religious nationalism, a sort of for God and Jerusalem ideology, as if that could ever happen. And so at this stage, uh, Jeremiah's conflict is with the prophets and the priests. The officials and the king remain quite sympathetic to him. They're generally a conservative influence on the culture. 
It's the cultural elite which is busy. Now, our cultural elite, the philosophers, the media, the popularizers of science, have busy, been busy building an idol. It is the idol which has produced the warp thinking we saw in that video clip. Once upon a time, it was generally assumed that we could each know ourselves as a uniquely valuable creation made by a supreme artist, our Father in Heaven. We could rejoice in glad self-acceptance at having been made as we are with a deeply significant future ahead of us. As a child, I remember singing a little song in church which had the line, I just thank you, Father, for making me, me. Well, that turned me into narcissist, but anyway. Now those beliefs are gone. The sky is emptied. Heaven has gone away. We no longer feel we can depend on the reality or purposes of God. And far from being a unique creature of God, for whom the all-wise, loving Father has designed a unique purpose, the individual now finds herself merely the product of biological randomness, <coughs> blind forces. She's a piece of biology. But that biological substrate, we are told, can helpfully be thought of as a blank sheet of paper. And here is the key thing. It's a blank sheet of paper, a vehicle that I can use to build my own self, to write my own story. Here's what your culture is telling young people. Once we remove the straitjacket of thinking of ourselves as creatures made by God, we become truly free. Isn't it great we can throw away all that religious stuff about human nature and being made in the image of God? We weren't created by God. We create ourselves, culture says. The biological machine called my body is just a substrate. I can use it to create myself, my own identity. I don't need a drink of water. This is an illustration. Please behold this glass of water. The glass is rigid and unyielding, but the water inside is fluid. And a group of philosophers stretching over about 150 years began to teach us that identity is a liquid thing. The essence of living, we were told, is to exult in our liquid spirit, to rejoice at how plastic and fluid we are. So imagine that the water in this glass represents my identity, or this bottle. But I decide... I do not like being shaped as a cylinder. I would actually quite like to be shaped as a cylinder, but that's... that's uh, let's imagine that I am much more attracted to being a different shape. Okay? I've now reinvented myself. I'm no longer Bruce Jenner. I am Caitlyn Jenner. I can be whatever I want to be. In the 1960s, the cry was, I can do whatever I want to do, but now it's not. It's much more profound. I can be whatever I want to be. I can create myself. I am creator of my own self. By following my desires, I can create and recreate myself whenever I want. And that is the idol which dominates our cultural landscape. It's been built over 150 years. The romantics like Rousseau laid the foundations. Then came Freud, French philosophers like Foucault. Most sane people haven't read much Sartre. But the great, that great source of cultural power in our society, the media, has taken these difficult, complex philosophical ideas and has ground them down into popular bite-sized chunk that appear on every teenage soap. In fact, you'll even find traces of those ideas in an episode, and I'm not joking here, in an episode of Peppa Pig. In stage two, the focus moves from the cultural elite to the political elite. The political elite rejects the truth and adopts the idolatrous ideas that have been promoted by the cultural elite. I'm sure most of you know that terrible moment in chapter 36 of Jeremiah 
when the king burns the word of God in a fire. I cannot think of a more chilling moment in the whole of the Old Testament. King Jehoiakim is sitting in his palace. It's a cold winter's day and he has a fire burning in the room. Now you need to understand the full horror of this moment. Don't think for a moment that the king grabbed the scroll of Jeremiah's, the word of God, and, and threw it in a fit of anger into the fire. No. The incident is terrifying because the officials and the king are so calm, so deliberate. The servant reads out a column of the scroll. The king thinks about it. He nods, walks over, takes a sharp knife, slices off that column and burns it in the fire. And that process has continued until the word of God disappears. We are watching a deliberate, calculated rejection of the word of God. It wasn't an angry outburst. It was cold and premeditated. So in stage two, the political elite deliberately rejects the word of God. And as Jeremiah records the process, the rejection of truth takes place mostly among the officials. So in actual fact, it ends up that the next king, King Zedekiah, is like a powerless puppet at the mercy of his own officials. Our prime minister, uh, Mrs. Theresa May, used to be home secretary. She is the daughter of a Church of England vicar. Our previous education sector secretary is called Nikki Morgan, and she is a professing Christian. Some time ago, they announced an initiative to tackle Islamic extremism in our schools. I don't know if you recall, they were responding to the so-called Trojan horse scandal in Birmingham, where Islamic extremists, extremists were conducting a targeted campaign to take over governing boards of schools in that region. Now, here's the thing. The Home Secretary of the time and the Education Secretary handed the implementation of their plan, remember, a plan to tackle Islamic extremism, and they handed it over to the civil service. What emerged was a plan to test children as young as four or five to see if they had a positive view of the LGBT agenda. School inspectors were to ask infants to explain to them what a lesbian was. Now, the obvious question arises. How did an initiative designed to tackle Islamic extremism end up as a state-sponsored attempt to brainwash innocent young minds with LGBT propaganda? And the answer is that the civil service had started to worship the idol of self-creation. Jeremiah teaches us that the second stage of cultural collapse occurs when the establishment, by that I mean the civil service, the judiciary and so forth, reject truth. It's not just that truth has vanished from the media and the university, it has now vanished from the corridors of power. In the final stage, the population at large adopts an idolatrous worldview. Now, this, there's a spine-chilling moment in chapter 44 of Jeremiah, and the context is that this is after Jerusalem has fallen and a group of diehards go on a, a self-imposed exile back to Egypt. It's astonishing. You see, way back in, in stage one, Jeremiah had, uh, was standing in the temple at Jerusalem. And he proclaimed these words, truth has perished. These people who went to Egypt uh, took Jeremiah with them. So in chapter 4, we find Jeremiah once again standing outside a temple, but this time it is the temple of the sun god Ra. This is the exodus in reverse. And we hear the ordinary people talk for the first time, and here's what they say. They start to talk about a false god called the queen of heaven. They used to bake cakes for her. Uh, even after Jeremiah had condemned such an idolatrous activity. We don't really know much about the Queen of Heaven except that she apparently liked cake. Uh, anyway, they now stand in the wreckage of their lives, the wreckage that their idolatry has caused. And here's what they say. If only we hadn't stopped baking cakes for the Queen of Heaven, the exile would never have happened. 
You see what happened? An absurd piece of logic. Their idolatry had formed an entirely false web of beliefs about what was real. So the horrors of the exile and the siege were explained by the suspension of their sacrifices to this false god. To use a well-worn phrase, sin had built a false view, worldview into the minds of the people. And that is the final stage of cultural collapse. Idolatry seeps so deep into the minds of ordinary people that they interpret all of reality through its lens. They can only see the world in that way. They've insulated themselves from truth. I was taking a seminar recently on the subject of human sexuality and gender. In the course of my talk, I quoted some statistics about the astonishing increase in the likelihood of suicide after gender reassignment surgery. In some cases, 200%. And someone sympathetic to the LGBT worldview countered my point by saying that, here's what they said, the increase in the probability of suicide is caused by the pressure put on transgender people by evangelicals like me. They argued that my refusal to affirm and celebrate the transgender story was the source of the mental stress that leads so many transgender people to take their own lives. And as I listened to this passionate outburst, my mind went to Jeremiah 7. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. So that is how a culture collapses. The cultural elite build an idol. The political elite then reject the truth. And the people adopt an idolatrous worldview. Now, here's the obvious question. Why on earth have I ground you through all that stuff? Because it's really important that you understand how a culture changes. We stand at a crucial moment in Northern Ireland. There is a great risk, and I hope I don't offend with what I'm now about to say. There is a great risk that we unthinkingly follow in the footsteps of many evangelicals in America and rehearse their strategy in the face of cultural collapse. U.S. politics is complicated. I don't want to stand here just as one more ignorant, sneering European. But I think everyone would agree that despite the enormous effort made by the Christian right in the U.S., their campaigns have been completely unsuccessful. The energy, the money, the skill they have put in is very impressive, and I mean that sincerely. But despite all the placards, the political lobbying, the creation of huge voting blocks, cultural change in America has progressed at bewildering speed. And why? Well, Jeremiah explains. The cultural and political elites have simply steamrollered onwards. Culture change happens from the top down, so populist resistance is not the answer. So how should we react? Well, perhaps a silly illustration uh, might help. As Christians, we used to be in the driving seat of culture. We set the direction and the speed. But we're no longer in the driving seat. Our driver is now someone who has a profoundly anti-Christian view of reality. So we face a choice. We can either be a front seat passenger who tries desperately to grab hold of the steering wheel and seize back control. Or we can sit in the back seat and explain courteously and rationally why the car is going to crash. In the front seat, we are defending a culture. Our language is all about entitlement. This is a Christian country. How dare you take our rights away? But in the back seat, we are standing for truth. We start to see ourselves as missionaries who live on a rain-swept island whose natives believe strange pagan ideas. Now imagine that the second approach sounds far too passive in some ears. Ulster says no is part of my cultural DNA. But surely it would be wise to think deeply about our tactics here, wouldn't it? So to close, let me suggest a few principles which might govern how we prepare for life in Babylon. Uh, the first thing I must do is make an important clarification. All my talk about not resting control of the steering wheel shouldn't be misinterpreted as defeatist talk. 
as a recommendation to keep your head down and do nothing. Personally, I think it was right to use the courts to explore the important issues that flow from the Asher's Bakery case. But here's the thing. When we start to lose these sorts of cases in the future, as we most certainly will do, we are called to accept the state's right to sanction us. So it is possible to stand for truth while at the same time accepting the state's right to issue sanctions against us. Remember that when the Apostle Peter wrote to those little scattered communities uh, across Asia and told them to submit to a state authorities, he was writing to a people who would suffer under Nero. In Jeremiah 26, after the prophet has finished his courageous sermon denouncing the idolatries of his day, he's threatened with death. He is brave. He stands for truth without compromise. But then he says these words to the officials. As for me, I am in your hands. Do with me whatever you think is good and right. Be assured, however, that if you do put me to death, you will bring the guilt of innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on those who live in it. Jeremiah was brave, but he was no insurrectionist. He never used the language of entitlement. He didn't defend a culture. He stood for truth. And he then accepted the consequences that must flow from his stand. The second practical point is to accept that this historical process is going to happen. Jeremiah was regarded as a traitor for saying that repeatedly. The exile is going to happen. The Babylonians are coming. The Babylonians are coming. And the people of Judah only grudgingly admitted that the old traitor might have been right when they walked through the Ishkar gate into Babylon itself. We need to be careful not to be despondent about that. First of all, remember that in historical terms, what's happening here is that things are going back to normal. For the past 2,000 years, the default position has been that Christians have flourished in pagan societies. When we get to heaven, we're going to discover that our lives are most unusual. And remember that life in Babylon wasn't all persecution. You've got to be careful about that. Think of Daniel's life. Yes, there were spikes of persecution. There was the fiery furnace. There was the den of lions. There were long periods of marginalization. But for most of his life, Daniel lived a productive and happy life. He obeyed Jeremiah's instructions to live for the good of the city. He made a really important contribution to its well-being. Northern Irish evangelicals, to use a sweeping generalization, have a tendency to withdraw from our society. We want to pull the drawbridge of our evangelical bastion up, hurl the occasional gospel tract over the parapets, and wait for the return of Christ. But don't be so afraid of the great idols which tar over our cultural landscape. Like Isaiah before him, Jeremiah is relentlessly rude about idols. He mocks them with ruthless sarcasm. He describes them as scarecrows in a melon patch. In chapter 10, he says, They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it will not totter. Let me get, speak to the young people in this room for a moment. The same thing that Jeremiah saw, that idols fall, is going to happen in your culture. So do not be afraid. A lot of people will get hurt in the process, but one day those apparently invincible idols, including the idol of self-creation, will topple over. They rot from the inside. Maybe you don't believe me. Some years ago I was uh, traveling back home from Budapest. I had been leading a retreat for a group of missionaries, and I'd hoped that they would drive me back to the airport, but the cheapskates abandoned me at a remote bus stop 30 miles outside Budapest. <laughs> it's important to be gracious. Now, it was a weird place. It was, just wasn't a bus stop. It was a graveyard for the, an enormous number of Soviet-era statues. There were scowling busts of Stalin and Lenin, bronze casts of the noble workery, all the usual communist kitsch. 
And I sat on Lenin's head for a while and I thought about the unbelievable speed with which the Soviet Empire collapsed. Idols always rot. Don't be afraid. The exciting dreams of humanism always turn to ashes. Think of Coldplay's Viva La Vida. I used to rule the world. Seas would rise when I gave the word. Now in the morning I sleep alone, sweep the streets I used to own. So do not be afraid. You're called simply to stand for truth and wait for the falseness of our social idols to be exposed. One day the truth will out. That is the nature of truth. Of course we long for Christ's return, but if he tarries, remember that idols always fall. They always rot. Your job is to stand so that we can pick up the pieces afterwards. Finally, we come to the reason why I've given this talk. Our churches need to prepare young people for life in Babylon. Unfortunately, we are doing a very poor job at the moment. Over the past seven or eight years, I have watched groups of young Christians come to universities across Ireland, particularly Queen's. Many of them have come from stable, loving Christian homes. Many belong to churches full of dedicated and loving believers. But they have been taught what to do, not why to do it. They have been taught what to believe, not why to believe it. And they then enter the pagan world of a university campus. They encounter people who have a completely different worldview, and many of them cannot cope. They cannot give a reason for the living hope within them. So here's what happens. They develop a church head and a college head. In church, they have one set of conversations with their pastor and their elders, but on campus, they have a different set of conversations with their friends. And that sort of spiritual schizophrenia will always end in disaster. So our churches must become places where we equip young people to engage with the pagan culture. Now, you probably noticed that a number of my examples in this talk related to the issue of sexuality and gender. That emphasis was chosen because it is currently the biggest issue teenagers face in their real lives. But there are other issues. Why exactly is assisted suicide wrong? Tell me again why I believe the Bible is true. Why I believe it's the word of God. Why can't I just live and let live? Why is it okay to evangelize other people? To force my views on them? Now, if our answer is simply because the Bible says so, then we are failing the next generation. I... Um, even I am bored with the sound of my voice, so I'm going to stop pretty soon. We'll take some questions. Um, I'm not going to talk through those, those ideas in detail. Let me, you can glance over them. We can maybe pick them up in the Q&A. Um, but let me close by putting these thoughts together into a hopefully coherent thesis. If my generation believes without knowing why it believes, and if it defends Christian values simply using the language of entitlement and cultural dominance, we are doing the very worst thing we can do for our upcoming generation, for people who are under 30. People like me will be fine. I'll be home in heaven before it all gets a bit rough. But the upcoming generation will find themselves living in a post-Christian world with no idea how to stand for truth. So our churches need to start thinking intelligently, without fear, without anger, about what life will be like. What will it be like to be a doctor in 20 years' time? What will it be like to be a teacher in 10 years' time? We need to think about these things and then put programs in place to equip their young people. Now, you have endured this unstructured ramble for long enough.